Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Labor Know Your Rights podcast, brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. They can be found at www.nljsp.us. I'm happy to announce that we now have a toll-free number for our listeners to leave a comment or a question. Please dial 1-855-625-8610. If you are outside of the U.S., Canada, or Caribbean, or if you want to make your recording using a voice recorder, please visit www.lifeonrecord.com slash podcast slash question mark EID equals E43B98. You can also visit the show notes to get the link there or our website. Do you know somebody that has a birthday, anniversary, or any other special occasion coming up? A great way to give them a wonderful gift is a meaningful audio keepsake of phoned in stories, memories, and well wishes from family and friends telling the recipient why they are so special. For more information, visit lifeonrecord.com. Great way to get a toll-free number so any of your friends and family can call in and leave these messages. And you can get it recorded onto a keepsake for the person you're giving this to. Unions are corrupt and mobbed up. One of the most difficult issues trade unionists frequently address are accusations of corruption organized crime influence in union movement. These allegations often come from individuals and groups that oppose trade unionism and are looking for ways to undermine the right of workers to self-organize. But to deny the existence of both corruption and organized crime does nothing to raise the credibility of labor unions and labor unionism. In fact, just the opposite occurs. It's first important to distinguish between corruption and the mob, which to some may seem like a semantic distinction. Corruption exists in every institution, and unions aren't an exception. The type of corruption can take any number of forms, including embezzlement, fraudulent elections, and bribery. Where money and power exist, corruption can emerge and spread like a disease. Corruption. In general, a lack of financial control and regulation in any organization, including unions, makes corruption possible. What's striking is the case of labor unions is that all too common belief that the union leader is entitled to treat the organization treasury as his or her personal bank. This can happen only when there is a lack of genuine democracy and or poor or non-existent systems of checks and balances. Corruption might be on a a small scale, like using the union's credit card to buy pizza for one's family on a Friday evening, or it might be on a much larger scale, such as bribery, embezzlement, or the misuse of union funds in a political election. Corruption can grow and spread through termless administrations. When leaders can run for office endlessly, they tend to create a protective coterie around them. Individuals that in that coterie, start to see the, their future as being determined to a great extent by the future of that leading individual, rather than by the organization. As such, individuals in the coterie become highly protective of the leader, even if and when the leader acts irresponsibly and engages in questionable activities. To speak against the leadership might jeopardize the coterie members' careers, so they remain silent. That said, unions are under tremendous levels of scrutiny by various governmental institutions, meaning that unlike corporations, which can move vast amounts of money to overseas accounts, unions have to be quite careful about their financial affairs. Government-acquired reports designed to root out corruption are foisted on unions often to the point of being burdensome. Thus, while corruption certainly exists in some unions, demonstrably not a phenomenon that afflicts the labor movement as a whole, there will always be examples of corrupt union officials who attempt to game the system. However, as I have repeatedly mentioned, an educated membership is a critical safeguard against these problems. The mob. The history of organized crime and the mafia 
in particular, is often misunderstood when it comes to the union movement. Well, all mob activity is evidence for of corruption, not all corruption is evidence of mob activity. Yet the two are often conflated. In the history of trade unionism, there have been several unions that, at various points, have been significantly penetrated by the mob. These have included the Laborers International Union of North America, the Hotel Employers Employees, the Hotel Employees Restaurant Employees International Union, known as Unite Here, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, and the International Longshoremen's Association the dock workers on the East Coast and Gulf Coast. Many other unions, including the Service Employees International Union, have struggled with mob influence in the years past. The four mentioned above, however, have been the subject of federal investigations at various times. Understanding the legacy of the mob in labor unions means stepping away from the gross characterizations and looking very carefully at the nature of the problem. The report from the President's Commission on Organized Crime, much of which makes for quite interesting if sobering reading, offers the following qualifications that are worth noting when one hears the rants of anti-union folks. In naming these four international unions, we are not saying that all of the locals of these unions are controlled or even influenced by organized crime. As testimony before the commission will show, some very courageous local officers have, on occasion and at great risk, defied racketeer control. But of the apparently 50,000 labor organizations in the U.S. with a total of over 9 million in assets, the law enforcement analyses are that about three to 400 locals are heavily influenced or controlled by organized crime syndicates. Many of these however, are very major local embracing thousands of members in strategic cities, enabling gangster domination of the internationals, even though in the majority of the locals, the officers and the membership are not corrupt. It's worth exploring how and why the mob penetrate unions, but we must be careful when we simply say it's about money. This doesn't mean that the mob is only or in some cases mainly interested in stealing money from a local or national unions, but rather there is access to various pots of money, the workers' money they can get their hands on. They can also use their influence in a union to intimidate employers or serve as a de facto mercenary army for an employer that wishes either to crush a militant wing of a particular union or to crush a rival legitimate union. Control pension funds and health and welfare funds is often a major goal of mobsters when penetrating unions. The unions have a checkered history and were started by communists and other troublemakers. The fact that labor unions aren't ideological organizations doesn't, however, mean that individuals and organizations with specific political ideologies haven't historically and don't currently play a role in building them. Problem of the outside agitator. Central to the employer class's ideology is the notion that conditions in most workplaces are the equivalent of a family and should be treated as such. By definition, they disregard the notion that there is a built-in power conflict between workers and the employer class, even if that conflict need not be explosive in every case. It is important to understand this frame of mind because what comes next only makes sense if you grasp the employer's assumption. For the employer class, any disruption among the workers must be the result of outside intervention since there's nothing in the work environment, as far as they are concerned, that should result in any significant problems. The employer class isn't the only group that thinks this way. In struggles against racist discrimination, for instance, those who perpetrate such oppression always suggest that the so-called outside elements have been involved. In employer-worker relations, the matter of outside agitators carries with it the suggestion of subversive ends. Part of this is because some revolutionary political organizations see workers as a base that is necessary for fundamental social transformation. But the critical element is that it is an often successful means for the employer to split the workers and blame individuals for alleged disruptive activities.
The charge of outside agitator also offers the employer the opportunity to legitimatize the concerns and activities of the workers themselves, particularly if the employer can find among the workers some who will support the cause of the employer. Insofar as the employers were able to convince the broader public that unionization efforts were the result of nefarious outside actors, they could justify utilizing extreme measures to suppress organizing efforts. You may be wondering whether, nevertheless, there are outside forces. In truth, in many cases, there were and are organizers who have involved themselves in helping workers get organized. An organizer brings in knowledge and the experience of helping workers who wish to organize get organized, including providing information about labor law. That's their role. They don't substitute for the workers, but can be catalysts. In other cases, workers will organize on their own with or without outside assistance. In many cases, organizers from a labor union or some other labor organization will approach workers who have not already decided to form or join a labor union. Then organizers will seek out leaders are key opinion makers from among the workers to ascertain whether there really is a basis for organizing. Sometimes there is, and other times there isn't. There are situations where workers will start organizing in the absence of any outside assistance. In the early 1990s, a clear example of that were the spontaneous strikes and organizing that took place among drywall construction workers in Southern California. After they had carried out a series of strikes, they joined the Carpenters Union, but they had begun organizing without the direct assistance of a union. All of this begs an important question. Is there something wrong with the idea of someone from the outside assisting workers in getting organized? Bottom line is that there is nothing wrong with an outsider getting involved. There is also another reason that is often more difficult to articulate. Simply put, circumstances can often surround you to the extent to which you see no alternative to your situation. It may only be when there is an outsider who offers a different vantage point that things begin to change. Under circumstances such as these, that an outsider can often provide a different point of view. The threat of so-called outside agitators is that they offer hope to those who have gone without it. Organizations and individuals on the left involve themselves in helping form labor unions, often playing a critical role. But in playing this role, they were building organizations that were not ideological organizations, even if the organization took positions on different matters. At the end of the day, membership in a union did not require that a worker hold to a specific set of ideological beliefs. Stop, you might yell, if you are up on your labor history. What about groups like the Industrial Workers of the World, which was deeply ideological and didn't believe in capitalism? That is true to an extent. The IWW, founded in 1905, was led by revolutionary syndicalists who believed that capitalism needed to be replaced by a different system in which the union and workers were in control. Yet the activity of the unions that were formed was focused on the immediate needs of the workers who were being organized. Whether one was discussing mine workers in the West, agricultural workers in the fields, or dock workers in busy ports, to join the IWW, you didn't have to subscribe to the beliefs of the leadership any more than joining a religious institution necessarily means that you adhere to the views of the leaders of the congregation. What was different about the IWW, however, and what distinguished them from most of the unions of the American Federation of Labor was the feistiness and their intolerance to racism. But it was also their opposition to racism, something we shall discuss later, which gave them a special place in labor history. At the time of the birth of Jim Crow, they would not tolerate segregated labor organizations. These characteristics of the IWW flowed from their ideology, but that did not mean that subscribing to the ideology of their leadership became a prerequisite for membership. Usually not formal unions have been created that hold to specific ideology, but among other things, 
making an ideology the basis for membership in a union where that union is the exclusive representative of the workers for purposes of collective bargaining is illegal. More importantly, keeping a labor organization that is trying to reach masses of workers ideologically nearly guarantees that it will remain small except during unusual times. During the 1930s, a great labor leader, who also happened to be a Republican, John L. Lewis, after being at odds with communists in the United Mine Workers, was prepared to openly ally with them in the building of what came to be known as the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO. Lewis hired communists, socialists, and other leftists, recognizing quite openly that they were among the most committed and capable of the organizers that he could find for the mission of building a new union movement. He and others permitted unions to emerge in the the CIO that were led by communists, socialists, and left-wing sympathizers. And while this was happening, labor was actually growing as a force in the United States society. It is important to realize that at no time there was Lewis himself a communist or anything approaching that. So it is true that leftists have often played a major and largely positive role in the union movement, including to this day. They haven't done this through manipulation, but have done this work, whether as a rank-and-file activist, leader, or staff member within the overall constraints of unions. Radicals on the political left, therefore, constitute one of the currents within trade unionism. An accurate look at labor history demonstrates that left-wing activists in the unions were often central in the building and rebuilding of the labor movement, irrespective of their long-term views suggesting that unions are somehow inappropriate due to the activities of leftists misses a central organization fact about unions. They are open to workers of any number of political tendencies. Any effort to eliminate someone due to their political tendency will have a cascading effect, as was demonstrated during the Cold War, where the hunt for radicals became a means to suppress dissent within the union movement itself. Unions are all racist and people of color need not apply. Communities of color have a complicated relationship with organized labor, one that stems from a history that includes examples of courageous interracial interethnic solidarity on the one hand and intense racial ethnic antagonism on the other. To address this charge, it's critical to appreciate three underlying problems, the character of the United States as a political entity, the implications of competition among workers, and social control over workers by the employer class. To say that unions are racist is a problematic assertion and first necessitates understanding that race is a social-political concept rather than a matter of either biology or imagination. Africans as well as Europeans were brought to North America as indentured servants, meaning they could achieve freedom after a specific period of time. Africans were also brought here as slaves. In response to regular revolts of indentured servants that were often composed of both European and African and sometimes Native American laborers, indentured servitude for Africans was fully replaced by slavery for a life by the late 1600s. Race was constructed in the 1600s as a mechanism that enabled those in power to divide and conquer. It wasn't just the proliferation of a set of bad ideas, but the combination of certain ideas with concrete practices that reinforced the suppression of certain groups. Race has never been a hard and fast category because certain groups that were, for example, not considered white in a given era such as the Irish of the 1700s, became white in a different era, the mid to late 1800s. This evolution is a reflection of politics, not biology. As a consequence, every institution in the United States was corrupted by the stench of racism, a fact demonstrated time and again by the differential in treatment various groups received, such as access to land, education, housing, jobs, and security. The second issue concerns competition among workers. 
When workers respond to such competition, they do so in one of two ways. The first is a technique known as exclusion in which you minimize the number of individuals you're attempting to organize to guarantee that those who succeed benefits significantly. An example of this would be the old guilds or many of the building trade unions. Both organizations want to ensure that the labor market for their particular craft or trade isn't flooded, so they create a membership requirements that ensure members are skilled and that the market isn't overloaded. Exclusion doesn't necessarily mean racist or sexist. It can result from a sober analysis of the labor market and the nature of the job. In either case, it's one option. The alternative is inclusion, which aims to organize all that can be organized. This may mean not only the existing workforce for a particular employer, but all workers in that industry. It may even go further and seek to organize those who are potential members of this job market. Although the inclusion-exclusion dichotomy doesn't necessarily break down on a racial-ethnic basis, in the United States it typically does. As a result, it has historically been common to have certain components of a union dominated by a particular racial or ethnic group. It has also been common to find entire industries missing a critical mass of women, in the building trades, for instance, there might be in the same city a local union that's known as an Italian local and another known as an Irish local because of the ethnic character of the leadership and the dominant demographics of the local union itself. This reality explains some of the tension that exists between many building trade unions and communities of color. For instance, in Boston, a local union of the iron workers didn't have any members of color for most of the 20th century. They were, in fact, not permitted to join. It was only through a courageous lawsuit by several black iron workers in 1972 that entrance was opened. It should, therefore, come as no surprise that Boston communities of color tended to view the building trades as racist and inaccessible. The introduction of race wasn't an accident or the result of some genetic historic tension. It was constructed with particular objectives in mind. The repeated uprisings in the colonial North America of the 1600s unnerved the ruling elite. To ensure the suppression of the uprisings, they required a military force. But more importantly, they needed to foment division within the rebellious ranks of the laboring population. Race then became a means of exacerbating the divisions that capitalism had already engineered within the workforce by giving them a new identity and a set of consequences when challenged. Were workers of color irrelevant to the building of unions? Until the early 1970s, one would have thought that workers of color were largely bystanders in the creation of unions. Led by historians such as Philip S. Foner, labor history was re-examined and facts about, about workers of color that had been ignored or were previously unknown were uncovered. Here are a few interesting tidbits. The 1600s were rocked by revolts of laboring people in which black laborers played a critical role. Such an example is Bacon's Rebellion. The early years of Reconstruction witnessed the emergence of unions and union-like organizations among the freed African laborers in the South, many of which engaged in what we today term wildcat strikes. Black dock workers organized throughout the South from the mid to late 19th century and well into the 20th century. Latino and Native American mine workers were a key part of the industrial workers of the world efforts in the Southwest. Asian American workers also had to organize separately from whites because they were excluded and were often the targets of some of the most virulently racist campaigns. In the early 20th century, there was a unified effort of Japanese and Mexican-American workers called the Japanese-Mexican Labor Association. Asian-American workers would go on to play a major role in organizing agriculture and canneries. The success of the CIO was largely based on the support that the CIO unions were able to win among African-Americans, Chicanos, and Asian-Americans. 
and Asian American workers in key industries. These groups often represent the key ingredient to success. There is much more that could be discussed, but the point is that for years, this history was largely ignored. It wasn't simply that the workers of color found themselves excluded from certain unions, but rather that most of the official movement excluded this history. Today's situation. The realities of race and labor today are both surprising and yet not so shocking given the tumultuous history. In 2010, among major race and ethnicity groups, black workers were more likely to be union members, 13.4%, than were white at 11.7%. Asian Americans were at 10.9%, or Latinos at 10%. Workers, Latinos, are the fastest growing segment of the unionized workforce, moving from 5.8% in 1983 to 12.2% in 2008. Asian Americans have also grown in the unionized workforce from 2.5% in 1989 to 4.6% in 2008. Black workers are about 13% of the unionized workforce, a percentage that has not changed much since 1983. There are a number of conclusions that we can draw from these statistics. First, and for many most surprisingly, the percentage of African American union members, that is, a percentage of African Americans, has consistently outpaced other racial ethnic groups for years. Percentage of African Americans who were union members compared with the percentage of union members who are African American has dropped from roughly 18% about 10 years ago to its current 13.4% more than likely representing the combination of the hits taken in unionized manufacturing as well as the reduction in the public sector workforce. While there are significant numbers of workers of color who are members of labor unions, this doesn't extend to the top leadership and staff of most unions. In fact, the demand for greater representation at the top dates back to the 1930s, but took a more organized form with the creation of the National Negro Labor Council beginning in around 1951. While such insurgencies have altered many policies over organized labor to make them more amiable to workers of color, there has been immense difficulty cracking into the upper echelon. The reasons for this problem include the following. Straight demographics. Union elections include all members. It's winner-take-all. Unless the Constitution of the Union provides for a certain percentage of slots for people of color, thus a demographic minority may find it difficult to break in. Favoritism. In top staff positions, a tendency by top leaders to favor people they know. This may not be consciously racist, but the result is the same. An over-alliance on the same pool of people and a reluctance to take risks with outsiders are unknowns. Source polls. This is related to the last item, but polls for certain positions are often ones that have limited numbers of applicants of color. Straight-out racism. The belief that these top positions simply shouldn't be occupied by people of color. Rationales such as they are not ready or they are not qualified. This may play out in almost a logorchic manner in which a small group reproduces itself. It's true that union staffs and leaderships have become more diverse over the last 25 years, but this diversity doesn't necessarily mean that the internal power relationships have fundamentally shifted. The question is always one of who is actually making the decisions, not just who is at the table. This is one of the biggest challenges facing unions as they proceed into the 21st century. Unions have a history of sexism. What makes them better now? As with allegations of racism in unionism, charges of sexism, well, often speaking to very real problems and injustices, can also be used when stated broadly and without specifications as a means to promote an atmosphere of cynicism and despair. As capitalism developed, the role of women in work wasn't entirely consistent. However, work was divided into two parts. There was formal work, that is, activity that was largely accepted as work. Separately, there was non-formal work activities like child-rearing and household maintenance that, as capitalism developed, weren't regarded as proper work but simply as part of a woman's domain. In agricultural societies, 
there were gender divisions of labor, but with evolution of manufacturing, certain jobs were reserved for women and others for men. The textile industry, which relied on the labor power of women as an illustrative case, however, increasingly the formal activity of men were given greater societal importance in women's labor. Certainly by the 1800s, the outside the home activity of women came to be seen as supplemental to the income brought in by men. This was certainly the case for married women. Thus, it should be no surprise that labor unions developed as largely male-dominated organizations and remained so well into the 20th century. There were nevertheless specific activities that were largely reserved for women not all of which was considered by the dominant society to be real work. The textile and garment work had a significant female workforce and would become the site of very progressive union organizing in the 20th century. By the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a concept developed known as the family wage, or the notion that a man should receive a wage sufficient to support a wife and children, although there were women who supported this concept. In effect, what it institutionalized was the notion that men's work should be the defining feature in society within any family. Women's Contributions to Unions One of the most fascinating facts of labor history and ignored for years is that women have been central to it from the beginning. Much like the history of workers of color until 25 to 30 years ago, the history of women in unions was treated as largely marginal, yet nothing could be further from the truth. Consider the following example. 1824, women weavers and men strike in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. In 1825, Lavinia White and Louise Mitchell formed the United Tailoresses Society and lead a strike. This was the first example of women striking on their own. In 1829, women mail workers in Taunton, Massachusetts strike. In 1834, women in Lowell, Massachusetts strike over firing. In 1836, Factory Girls Association leads strike of 1,500 in Lowell. Similar strikes take place in New York and Pennsylvania. In 1866, in Jackson, Mississippi, black washerwomen resolved to charge the same rate for their work. In 1867, Cigar Makers Union is the first national union to accept women as members. In 1869, Daughters of St. Crispin, founded in Lynn, Massachusetts, became the first national women's labor organization. In 1869, Mary A. S. Carey addresses the convention of the Colored National Labor Unions. In 1877, Mother Jones supports striking railroad workers and goes on to a long career in the labor movement. In 1881, 3,000 black washerwomen in Atlanta go on strike. In 1886, the Knights of Labor sets up a women's department. In 1892, the American Federation of Labor hires its first female organizer. In 1909, uprisings of the 20,000 in which women shirtwaist workers mobilize en masse and join unions. And this is only through 1909. If we examine the pre-1909 examples, we can draw a number of conclusions. First and foremost, these examples reveal that early manufacturing in New England relied heavily on the labor power of women. Although the work was segregated by gender, there were repeated strikes and other work mobilizations that involved both men and women. A second critical point, and one worth reiterating, is that the women's activism corresponded to the rise of the union movement as a whole. In other words, the emergence of an identifiable union movement can't be credited to men organizing alone or first, but rather the upsurge of both men and women workers. A third point that is contained in depth in the pre-1909 list was the dynamic and complicated relationship between the women's suffrage movement and the union movement. Thus, famous suffragists like Susan B. Anthony could, on the one hand, support unions and women's membership, only to later fall out with trade unionists by suggesting that women consider scabbing a strike, crossing a picket lines, 
In either case, the union movement tended to support equal pay for equal work as one of its platforms, and there were many suffragists who recognized the importance of trade unionism and the role that women could play in it. A fourth point we can draw is that women workers were quite prepared to go it alone if necessary. Part of this is credited to the segregated nature of work in which entire areas in a factory or in a sector of the economy would be all women. But more importantly, the courage and determination of the women clashed with the societal betrayal of women as helpless figures that had to be taken care of. Fifth, what isn't as obvious unless you know something about the industries involved is that women's work was itself segregated based on race. The textile plants in the Northeast became melting pots of immigrant workers and particularly immigrant women workers, while African Americans and other workers of color were excluded. As evidenced by the 1866 strike of black washerwomen, there was a tendency to allocate service and agricultural work to black women. Finally, the history of women workers of color is often segregated itself. The examples of women workers of color and their struggles and the roles they played has been regularly ignored or understudied both when one is examining the history of women workers as well as when one is examining the history of workers of color. As more labor unions were created in the 20th century, women were welcomed in some settings and rejected in others. Where they were welcomed, they tended to be segregated, at least in the beginning, and even in situations where entire unions had a significant, if not majority, female membership, men tended to dominate the leadership. This latter point has resulted in struggles to this day. More recently, today women make up 45% of unionized workers, up from 35% in 1983. Karen Newsom, founder of the Women's Workers Organization 9 to 5 and a leader in the AFL-CIO, has noted that organized labor represents the largest movement of women in the United States. The fact that we tend not to think about it that way speaks to the challenges faced within the union movement itself. But it was a case that, beginning in the 19th century, the male-dominated union movement began creating staff openings for women. These openings were inconsistent and limited. It took more than 10 years for the AFL to hire its first female organizer. For the Knights of Labor before them, there was a willingness to have women as components of the movement, but to keep them segregated nevertheless. In addition, while it was true that unions would express their support for the principles of equal pay for equal work, this didn't necessarily translate into an active campaign by male labor leaders or activists. Throughout the 20th century, an equally significant matter has been women's entry into job markets from which they were previously excluded. Along with the challenge of preventing the elimination of women from various jobs, to a great extent the union movement treated the gender division of labor as insurmountable. In some cases, it was encoded in the forms of organizations that were created. Labor scholar Dorothy Sue Cobble wrote about one such formation, the waitresses union that operated within the larger hotel employees and restaurant employees international union. Additionally, certain other forms of organizations were created to address women workers, such as the Women's Trade Union League. What was rare was the union movement struggling to break down doors that had restricted women. It is important to note that when it comes to race, this was also rare. If equal importance was a failure to defend women workers from removal when men were re-entering the workforce after World War II. When it comes to both race and gender, the union movement has great difficulty determining to what extent it should challenge existing structural practices. When the Stillworkers Organizing Committee, which later became the United Stillworkers of America, was actively organizing in the 1930s, it would frequently organize workers without changing or challenging the racial dynamics of a given workplace. Therefore, while the living standard of workers would increase, the conditions and locations of work generally remained segregated according to race. Much the same happened with women. Organized labor either accepted the prevailing view that this is men should be dominant or it concluded that it wasn't the union's responsibility to challenge established practices and instead should focus on improving the conditions of the workers given the constraints applied. 
As a result of this contradiction, beginning in the 1970s, women and their male allies placed increased pressure on the officialdom of organized labor seeking changes in the manner in which unions operated. Important changes became noticeable in the 1980s and 1990s when some unions, for instance, not only took up issues of equal pay for equal work, but also something that came to be known as comparable work. During this period, more women were elected to leadership positions, though the top positions remained largely with men. The women who gained tended to be white, a fact that became a source of additional tension, but also mirrored a phenomenon taking place in other sectors of society, which saw that some of the chief beneficiaries of affirmative action and affirmative action-type efforts were white women. Women's struggles aren't exclusively economic, but one must ask to what extent the union movement should actively engage itself in the broader fight against injustice. For some male and even female union members, the answer has been not to engage at all. That is, to take a path and describe such struggles as not being union struggles. This point of view is erroneous and misses the opportunity to build more diverse allies and reframe unionism as an instrument for justice. Okay, we have finally reached the last myth I have. I've saved it for last because I think it's the most important myth to address at this stage in time for many reasons. So here goes. Where do unions stand on immigrants? You either ignore them or you ignore the rest of us. Immigration has been one of the most difficult issues that organized labor has faced in its existence. It overlaps with matters of race, but has its own identity, which makes it even more complicated. So let's take a quick glimpse of the issues of immigration historically and then what it has meant and means today for unions. The setting. Immigration in the United States has always been shaped by one fundamental issue. This country was founded as a home for settlers moving to North America from Europe. There was no attempt to forge a nation-state with the indigenous Native American population, or at least until 1865 at the earliest. With the important African slaves, in fact, the dominant though not exclusive conception of the founders was of a European colony and eventually a European-American state. As discussed earlier, the ruling elite in the 13 North American colonies had a great deal of trouble controlling the laboring classes of the colonies. Race became a means of accomplishing three things, justifying the removal and extermination, if necessary, of Native Americans, the enslavement for life of Africans, and social control over the entire laboring population. As a group, the English, Scots, French, German, and Swedes, who were here by the early 1800s, weren't particularly welcoming to other European populations. Among the most well-known victims of anti-immigrant fervor were the Irish. While the Irish were clearly European, they came from a British colony and were looked down upon by the British, who considered them an inferior race. They couldn't be enslaved, but they could be subordinated in an implicit social-economic hierarchy to the largely Protestant immigrants who preceded them, and they could be subject to various forms of discrimination. Even though immigration laws have changed over time, most especially in the mid-1960s, conditions under which European immigrants operate have always been distinct from those encountered by immigrants of color that is, Asians, Africans, Caribbeans, and Latin Americans. Why do they come here? Discussion of immigration in the mainstream media tend to assume that all people migrate to the United States for essentially the same reason and are driven by the same causes. Poverty in Ireland, along with potato famine, a result of British colonialism, resulted in the exodus of at least a million Irish. Deep-seated poverty in southern Italy led to a major migration. Virulent anti-Semitism in Eastern Europe encouraged approximately 2.5 million Jews to leave their homes and travel to the United States. All the while, of course, U.S. industry was looking for more labor power. Following 1965, immigrants increasingly came from war-torn regions, places where the United States was involved economically or politically. 
Migration from Latin America was deeply affected by trade agreements such as NAFTA, where migration from Mexico increased approximately 60%, and their economic impact on the domestic industries of Latin American and Caribbean nations. Compounding this is the fact that U.S. economic interests sought cheap and vulnerable labor power in response to restructuring the global economy, domestic industries themselves restructured and targeted specific populations of workers considered vulnerable. Unions respond or react. Going back to the 19th century, European immigrants, often backbone of the white side of organized labor, one need only to remember that immigrant largely Jewish women in New York who transformed protest into unionization in the garment industry. But this was true in other sectors. John Sales dramatized the phenomenon in his excellent historically based film, Madawan, which concerns West Virginia miners in the early 1920s. The European immigrant worker in his film had not become white yet and were still an alienated group in a strange land coexisting with non-immigrant whites and with African-American workers. Yet at the same time, organized labor in the United States was ambivalent about immigration. In addition, there were diametrically opposed approaches when it came to immigration from Europe versus immigration from Asia. Overwhelmingly organized white labor, Asian exclusion, and in many cases outright deportation. Asian labor on the West Coast was presented as a threat to white labor, and this threat was racialized. Labor in the United States was divided over this question of immigration. Think about the inclusion-exclusion dichotomy we discussed elsewhere. With regard to immigration, essentially three general patterns emerged over time. Exclusion. This could be outright exclusion such as the Knights of Labor barring Chinese labor or simpler or de facto exclusion, a pattern in evidence in the build trades unions for most of the 20th century. Modified inclusion. This applied almost entirely to European immigrants, but meant that portions of a union might open up to a particular immigrant group. For instance, the same union might have local unions dominated by one or another European ethnic group. In other cases, a particular trade or craft would be dominated by a particular European immigrant population. Inclusion, the industrial workers of the world were among the most consistent on this, but there were other unions such as the mine, mill, and smelters union, and the food, tobacco, agricultural, and allied workers, part of the CIO. These were unions that were open to migrant workers and actively seeking to organize them. In times of economic distress, anti-immigrant fervor would strengthen and become the dominant feature within the union movement. One of the most notorious events in U.S. history was a massive expulsion of hundreds of thousands of Chicano and Mexicano residents, many documented U.S. citizens, during the Great Depression of the 1930s. This transpired because of the alleged threat of Mexican labor to U.S. citizens. Yet this expulsion, ethnic cleansing, did nothing to address the issues of unemployment faced by millions of people in the country at the time. What is the challenge for the Union? In the face of immigration, documented and undocumented, much of the Union movement rushed to support employer sanctions and other such controls in the 1980s. Some even went further and supported steps such as the militarization of the border and the creation of the so-called fence aimed at stopping immigrants. might wonder, is this all about racism and xenophobia? The answer is no. It's certainly influenced by racism and xenophobia, but it's far more complicated. Racism most clearly shows its face when there's a failure to acknowledge the differential in treatment between European and non-European immigrants, currently and historically. Unions observe that employers bring in immigrants, documented and undocumented, with the intent of removing current workers and reducing costs. Let's first look at the undocumented side of the question. Many unions have concluded that sanctioning employers simply doesn't work. In fact, what happens is that the immigrant workers is criminalized, meaning that 
an employer can use the undocumented worker, but as soon as said worker gets out of line, for instance by supporting a union, the employer will call Immigration and Customs Enforcement, also known as ICE, to have that worker removed. The employer isn't penalized, and many simply hire another vulnerable worker. Employer sanctions do not decrease the competition for jobs, but neither will a moratorium on all immigration. As long as there are trade agreements such as NAFTA and U.S. military intervention in the internal affairs of other countries, disposed populations will seek a better life and will travel to the sites of economies with which they have a historical relationship. This is remarkably different from the migration to the United States in the early part of the 20th century. If there's a moratorium on immigration, then there will be a lot of undocumented immigration. If the United States doesn't take responsibility for the conditions that it has often brought about overseas, people will travel here seeking a better life, giving truth to the slogan of the immigrant rights movement in Britain. We are here because you are there. Many unions began concluding at least a piece of this beginning in the early 1990s, thus leading to a different take on immigration within much of the organized labor. As a result of both a growing awareness of the impact of immigration on the workforce plus the activism of the immigrants' rights movements and their allies in organized labor, the AFL-CIO and increasing segments of organized labor as a whole began to see much as the old IWW did that once workers are here, they need to be organized. White unions largely refused to organize these workers, and the African Americans tended to see the unions as an enemy rather than a potential friend. It was only with a different approach by white organized labor, an inclusive approach undertaken by certain sections of white organized labor, that something very dramatic happened, the labor upsurge of the 1930s and the formation of the CIO. To be clear, the awakening among many unions necessarily been driven by ideological revelation. The building trade unions, at least some of them, have been forced to address this through organizing many of these immigrant documented and undocumented workers. It's become a situation of organize or die. Yet the unions, and especially those committed to organizing immigrant workers, there are delicate questions about non-immigrant labor, and the tensions are often quite evident in different unions. The approach taken by the United Food and Commercial Workers in organizing workers at the Smithfield plant in Tar Heel, North Carolina, was so significant from the beginning, the leadership of the campaign placed a premium on building unity between the African Americans, whites, and Latino immigrant workforce. They recognized the tension that existed and did not try to avoid them, but instead addressed them. The victory in the campaign is a tribute to this approach. As in previous eras, a struggle has been underway for the soul of organized labor, in this case over the question of immigration. Movements among immigrants have been pressing organized labor to favor its inclusionist side and embrace the demographic changes underway. To the original question, then, the answer seems to be that within organized labor, there remain significant elements of the old view that excludes immigrants, particularly undocumented immigrants. In the name of preserving the living standard of non-immigrant workers, at the same time there is a segment of organized labor that has concluded that the only way to preserve and raise the living standard of the workers is to organize them into unions and thereby build strength irrespective of whether they are immigrants or non-immigrants. Thank you, listeners. I appreciate the time it takes to listen to these. Please share this podcast with your friends, family, and anyone that you know that's in a union or is interested in becoming a member of a union. We can be reached at www.laborknowyourrights.com, all one word. Also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. You can also reach us at laborknowyourrights.com at gmail.com any suggestions on future episodes questions ideas or just you want to say hi or thank you feel free to contact us there and to wrap this one up i'd like to thank our sponsor the national league of justice and security professionals where the members come first <music>